Well, I want to encourage you to turn this morning to the book of uh, Philippians, chapter 4, if you would. Philippians, chapter 4. And I'll be reading verses 10 through 14. Philippians, uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, down through verse 14. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And let us pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of praise and worship and adoration. Thank you for the the preciousness of the assembly of the saints that we can gather together on the first day of the week and be reminded of the, the great power of God in raising your son from the dead and, and sing to Thee and praise Thee and, and do it together. And Father, I pray now that as we would turn to Your Holy Word, this section of Your Holy Word, I would pray for the, the clear, unmistakable help of Your Holy Spirit to convey thy, thy Word in a way that is pleasing to Thee, in a way that is, that is truly good for the souls of each one that is here this morning. I pray that You would help each of us to embrace what you would have for us in Holy Scripture. Give us understanding and might it, might it all redound to your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those of you that have uh, you know, come to the church uh, for a while, for a while, I mean, probably a, a few years, will know that um, when we have a little time off and I'm away, my, my mind will be drawn to different biblical themes other than the one that we have been studying on Sunday mornings. And then I'll wrestle, well, is this just for my own edification or should I study it and put it into a sermonic form? And uh, that's what I have decided to do this morning and I, I hope it will be helpful. Um, uh, the words of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11 speak uh, of learning to be content within which whatever circumstances one finds himself. And that's pretty basic. Most Christians are aware of that. It's not a theologically uh, uh, controverted kind of subject. And, um, but it just really came to my own soul with fresh power, so I made it the object of study and, um, and the focus of our consideration. It will be the focus of our consideration the, this morning. And these words, they come in the context of the Apostle Paul. He's rejoicing because the church at Philippi had revived their concern for him. And that concern was evidenced by the fact that they had sent him a gift and he had received a gift at the hands of Epaphroditus. This was during his first Roman imprisonment. Uh, the language of verse 10 where he says, now at last you revived your concern for me might suggest they've been a bit negligent, like it's about time you showed your concern. But such is not the case. Um, there's no, no rebuke is intended here. For, for whatever reason, they lacked opportunity to minister to him in this way. And the reason that he is rejoicing greatly, it's not because his need was being met, but rather their gift to him showed that they had a continued interest in the gospel. Their gift to him indicated they had a continued interest in the gospel. It fits in with what he said in 
the first chapter in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So we conclude that Paul would have been you know, thankful for the gift, but, but the occasion of receiving the gift became a springboard for him to uh, really just give a word of testimony. He says it's testimony to the effect that he had learned to be content in whatever circumstances he was in. And because this aspect of his testimony is in the Holy Scriptures, uh, I think we could be persuaded that it's not simply, well, good for you, Paul, but rather it's also a disposition that we want to adopt and practice in our lives as well. And before we jump into uh, this theme, let me just add four considerations by way of further introduction. Um, first of all, that this, this kind of contentment that is listed here that is found in this text is greatly needed. Because according to a book that Jeremiah Burroughs wrote in the 17th century, it's unusual to find this kind of virtue displayed in the life of a Christian. Uh, he wrote a book that's, that's based on Philippians 4.11 entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. At least that's the way it was in the 1600s, uh, which suggests then it, it was not frequent or common to um, come across a Christian who exhibited the quality of learning to be content or learning to be content with their, their lot in life. It was rare. It was an unusual thing to see. Uh, over the years, we've taken many uh, road trips, and one of the things that uh, I like is uh, seeing wildlife from, from the main road, not having to get off there too far. And so uh, we've seen lots of deer, and we've seen lots of elk. But one of the things I think that I think I could, we've only seen twice um, is a moose. And, and you know it when you see them. They're really unusual looking. We were south of Yellowstone National Park and remember seeing one. But it's rare. Uh, you don't come across that very often. And Burroughs' book is indicating it's, it's rare, it's unusual to come across uh, a Christian that had learned to be content. He says he was much concerned to promote peace and contentment in the hearts of individual believers during what he describes as sad and sinking times. That's the times that he lived in. He wrote, there is an ark that you may come into, and no men in the world may live such comfortable lives as the saints of God. So this Christian virtue of contentment is greatly needed because, at least in the 17th century, it was unusual to come across in the life of a Christian. It's out there. Secondly, uh, to live one's life in a state of perpetual, a perpetual discontentment cannot be good for the soul. Uh, to live one's life in a state of discontentment cannot be good for the soul. The obvious qualities that go along with discontentment are dissatisfaction, being disgruntled, frustrated with life, fretting because of evildoers, none of which comport with the joy and the peace that Paul is advancing in the, this particular letter. And thirdly, although being discontent, being disgruntled, being dissatisfied with circumstances, it's very easy to slip into that mindset. Um, nevertheless, it's not a good witness. It's not a good witness for the gospel. And I know that because I'm presuming that uh, discontentment and grumbling go together. That they go together. And if you turn back just a page to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul talks about that. He says in Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, and here's why, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And in essence, what Paul is saying here, uh, grumbling and murmuring is and complaining, that, that's not a good work, and it dims the light that should be shining 
in a dark and, or crooked and perverse world. Um, so contentment with one's lot in life, not grumbling, not complaining, not dissatisfied, that's what's supposed to set believers apart from a crooked and perverse generation. Well, in the fourth place, the Apostle Paul has the credibility to write about this theme. I mean, he's the right guy to listen to when it comes to learning to be content in difficult situations. He's writing these words of personal testimony uh, from the confines of his first Roman imprisonment, not knowing whether or not he was going to be executed. Now, if he had been writing, I guess from the equivalent of the, the penthouse suite of the Hilton Hotel on the shores of the Mediterranean, and said, you know, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in, it would have impeached his credibility to a great degree. If he would have been writing from the, the front porch of a cabin in the springtime by the river and looking at the birds and the trees and the, and the deer and saying, I've learned to be content, we might say, well, that's easy for you to say, but he's writing from the confines of his first Roman imprisonment. This, his life, his labors, his imprisonments for the gospel, this is what gives him credibility. He, he's the one to listen to. He's the man that can teach us how to learn to be content. He's the right person to listen to. So in light of that, I want to invite you to consider three facets of Paul's testimony about how he learned contentment, how he learned contentment, and we as well can learn the same thing. In the first place, I just notice the reality of his contentment, and here I'm thinking simply of verse 11, where he says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. This little phrase, not that I speak from want, I think Peter O'Brien in his work does a good job explaining its import. In order to correct any possible misunderstanding, Paul immediately disclaims that what he has said about rejoicing springs from a sense of need that has now been met by the Philippians' gift. His is not the joy of one who considers himself to be in dire financial straits and whose poverty is alleviated by the timely uh, arrival of Epaphroditus with the money. Supply of such a want cannot be the motive of his joy. He is not written in language dictated by want. I want to draw your attention to four factors that uh, govern our understanding of his experience of learning to be content. Number one, it's personal. Notice he says, I have learned to be content. And the basic idea, he's learned this by personal experience. The thought is to appropriate to oneself less through instruction than through experience or practice. People used to talk about learning through the school of hard knocks, the idea of, of learning by experience, the experiences of life, and that's the point he's making here. Uh, Peter O'Brien makes the point that from a grammatical perspective, uh, the I and I have learned, it's slightly emphatic and indicates I for my part, whatever it may be with others. I for my part have learned to be content, whatever it might be with others. Uh, another person cannot learn contentment for you or for me. Each one must learn it for him or herself. So as one goes through uh, various circumstances of life, each one of us has to take biblical truth and apply it to the particular situation that we find ourselves in. Kind of like Job in chapter 1 where he says, shall we, in this situation that they were in, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? So this learning contentment on the part of the Apostle Paul was personal Secondly, notice it was a process or it was progressive. He says, I have learned to be content. It wasn't a condition that he arrived at suddenly or instantaneously, but it was a continued application of, Holy, of the Holy Scriptures to particular situations. It took place over time. 
Our Lord himself, we're told of him in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. It was a process. Occasionally you come across people that are very skillful in certain practices. One might go to the golf course one day and play, play golf with somebody they had never seen before, and the guy actually shoots par for the course, and maybe he has a shot or two out of a sand trap. It goes within two or three feet of the pin, and you realize uh, he's played this game before. He didn't get like this overnight. It was a process over time. And that's the idea here. Paul learned contentment, but it wasn't fast. It wasn't instantaneous. It was over time. Third, it's a comprehensive or an all-inclusive kind of contentment. It's not limited to some circumstances. Nothing is excluded. He says, in whatever circumstances I am. His contentment is independent of external circumstances. Or, as one put it, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. J.B. Lightfoot wrote in the position in which I am placed. Now, it must be said that Christians are not the only one that place a high value on the virtue of contentment. Uh, O'Brien wrote in Stoic Ethics, contentment was regarded as the essence of virtues. It described the cultivated attitude of the wise person who had become independent of all things and all people, relying on himself because of his innate resources or the lot given him by the gods. Seneca's remark describes such a person. The happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. J.B. Lightfoot wrote that Socrates, when asked who was the wealthiest, replied, he that is content with least. And I would surmise that you probably know people that are unsaved, and they seem pretty content with their lives. They seem pretty satisfied with their lot in life. So fourthly, under this heading, I would... I would say, drawing a bit from the, from the broader witness of Scripture, that the contentment of the Christian has a theological dimension. The contentment of the Christian, what sets it apart, it always has a theological dimension. That is, it ascribes nothing to fate, nothing to the gods of this world, but it brings the God of the Bible into every single circumstance of life. It always takes into account the character of God, the activity of God, the purposes of God, the providence of God. Um, in fact, I, I would argue that a great means of learning to be content is simply embracing and advancing and glorying in everything that the Bible says about the God of the Bible. Just to kind of give you an example, you might recall in Psalm 73, it's, it's an account of a righteous man, a, a godly man, whose feet came close to stumbling. He says that he was envious of the arrogant. He saw the prosperity of the wicked. So like the Apostle Paul, he gives a bit of a testimony. And it's like, this is what I went through. Uh, he saw a kind of wealthy person. This is not every wealthy person, but a certain kind of rich person who rejected God, who mocked God, but because of their money, they don't have the same tr uh, troubles or struggles of other people. Um, and he even got to the point of feeling like his own pursuit of godliness was for nothing. And he says, surely in vain, I, I have kept my heart pure. Um, now, what changed everything him was not the external circumstances being altered. That had nothing to do with it. But rather, it, it was bringing the God of the Bible into the picture and seeing what he was doing. And this is what he says in verse 17 of Psalm chapter 73. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. This is where everything changed for him. Then I perceived their end. Thou, surely thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by 
by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. He did the right thing here. He stopped leaning on his own understanding and he discounted his own philosophical musings. He came to the sanctuary of God and he learned that in the midst of their, their atheistic, fleeting, temporal life, God had set them in slippery places. They would soon be thrown down or cast down to destruction. And then he's, he's completely changed here. And, and we know that he learned contentment because he affirms from the depth of his soul after this, not in vain have I kept my steps pure, but rather he says, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none upon earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And everything changed for him because he brought God into the, the, the center and the heart of his circumstances. Well, we see here in the first place the, the reality or the fact of Paul's contentment. He says he, he's learned to be content in every circumstance that he finds himself in. Then secondly, notice the extent of this contentment. And here we're looking at verse 12. We're moving on to verse 12. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and, and suffering need. Um, and so when I say that um, this, is the, this brings out the extent of his contentment, I'm especially thinking about the words, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content, especially thinking of, of those words. So basically, what we have in verse 12, there's an elaboration of what it means to learn contentment in every circumstance. So he's just expanding upon that and the process that he went through. So he gives greater, greater clarity to the process that he went through. And if we simply follow the, the, the path of the text, we see first uh, how to get along. He learned how to get along with humble means, and I also now know how to live in prosperity. Um, so these unfold his, his learning process. The term humble here is to be abased, Gordon Fee wrote, for, for Paul, this verb not only indicates poverty, it embraces a, a way of life similar to his Lord, a way of life that finds expression elsewhere in some of the hardship lists, and what he has in mind are things like these. 1 Corinthians 4.11, he says, At this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty, are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. And along the same lines in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. He's got credibility to teach about how to, about contentment. And this is what he went through. But he says he also knows how to live in prosperity. He knows how to be abased, to live in humble means. But he says he also knows how to live in prosperity. That is to have an, have an abundance. Now, I don't know, it might surprise us to think that he's learned how to live in prosperity. What's the challenge there, right? I mean, the challenge is when somebody doesn't have things, we might think. But according to the Bible, the greater challenge, it's really not poverty. It is prosperity. 
Um, one author wrote, if Paul claims to have the right attitude when he is brought low by poverty or want, then he's not less content when he has more than enough. He also knows how to cope with abundance. And Paul not only taught about this in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. What we arrive with is what we will leave with, which is nothing. If we have food and covering, he says, with these we shall be content. Then he goes on and he makes it clear why contentment is so necessary by bringing out a sobering option of being discontent. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with, uh, through with many a pang or many a griefs or, or sorrows. Um, and he also would have been aware of, of verses in the Old Testament like Psalm 49, 16. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. But while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Or Psalm 62.10, do not trust in oppression and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. And then Proverbs 23, 4, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Well, then secondly, he really elaborates further on this basic process of thought. He goes on in the text and he says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And we see the repetition here of this term learned from verse 11. So he's expanding again on the process that he went, went through, which includes these extremes. Being filled is to be satisfied or to, to eat to one's fill. Going hungry is to be or become uh, in need or want of food, especially experiencing hunger pains. In 1 Corinthians 4.11, to this uh, present hour, we are both hungry and, and thirsty. And then having abundance, which is the idea of being amply supplied, suffering need, lacking is to go without what one does not have. The important thing to note here, though, it's not simply that he's been at these two extremes. It's not like been there, done that, but rather that in each condition, uh, he responds in a God-pleasing way. He, he responds in the right way. He learned to be content in each situation, to keep his focus on that which causes contentment. He says in any and every circumstance, that that means not just these extreme positions, but everything else, everything in between. So it's the right response that he learned in each of these conditions which the Lord put him. The key here, I think, to this, this whole line of thought is this term secret. He said he learned the secret. In the first century, the term secret, uh, one author wrote, was a technical term taken from the vocabulary of the mystery religions uh, to describe the uh, initiatory rites of a devotee who wished to enter their secrets and privileges. But as O'Brien says, here, however, it describes a learning experience of a different kind. Paul had come to know the secret of, of being content, and he indicates the perfect tense reveals that it was not instantaneous now then the question arises what's the secret um, what did he learn what enabled him to be content in every circumstance well fortunately he doesn't keep the secret a secret um, he tells us in verse 13 
So we see the reality of, of his contentment, the extent of his contentment, then the source of his contentment is found in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the, the secret, the source of his contentment, the strength for being content comes from his relationship with the person of Christ. O'Brien points out this is the high point of the passage. He reaffirms and qualifies uh, the contentment in verse 11 by asserting that he's able to cope with all these situations, both good and bad, because of the powerful activity of the one who makes him sufficient. So, so Christ is the real, true source of contentment. And the fundamental explanation for Paul's all-inclusive uh, contentment, he's not drawing from his own resources or his own his psychological musings, but it's in Christ and Christ alone. I just have you... Notice three aspects of this declaration. And again, it's inclusive. That thought flows all the way through these verses. He says, I can do not most things through Christ, but I can do all things through Christ. That picks up on the, uh, in any and every circumstance of verse 12, in whatever circumstances I am, verse 11, that's because Christ is always the source of contentment he, because he's always there with, his, with the people of God all the time. Uh, the resources that produce contentment are always available to the people of God. This is because we are all in union. Every Christian is in union with the person of Christ. Now, the version of the Bible that you have probably is, is like mine. It says something like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you have a New American Standard, there's a little number one by the term through, and if you go to the side, um, the, the more literal translation, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. The old ASV is translated that way, and the RSV, and, and it, arguably that's a better translation because the idea is you or I or any Christian can do all things because we are in Christ. We're in union with Christ and partakers of his life. And secondly, this is an actual sustaining power that is infused into the soul. The word I can do means to be able to have resources, to be strong. And then the verb rendered who strengthens me is to make strong. So it's not just a spiritual pep talk, look at the bright side, that there's an actual sustaining power infused into the soul. This is what happens indoors. And this is, this is the great key to Paul's youth, usefulness. And it accounts for how he could go through and persevere in the midst of all these afflictions, all these trials, all of these oppositions that, that he faced in carrying out the message of the gospel. In fact, if I put it like this, if we were to ask the Apostle Paul, how in the world did you endure all this? I mean, how are you able to hold up in, in going through one affliction after another? He gives us the answer from his second Roman imprisonment in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And here he would not be released and the, the shadow of martyrdom is hanging over him. He says, at my first defense, no one supported me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. And then he says, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. So everybody left me, but that didn't really matter because the Lord stood with me. And not only that, he's saying the Lord strengthened me with persevering power to fulfill my purpose. So Paul and all believers can be content, independent of their circumstances, for one reason, and one reason only, through union with the very same person, with the being of Christ, because he imparts power to the soul and strengthens the soul. And I would add, this means, and it has to mean, 
Uh, only those who are converted will ever know true contentment. Only those who are saved and who are in union with the person of Christ will only know true contentment because they're the only ones that have access to the being of Christ. And those that are those that are apart from Christ can never know true contentment because the fleeting things of this world, the transient things of this world, they can never satisfy the, the deepest longings of the soul that's created in the image of God, which is true of everybody. Everyone is created in the image of God, and only Christ can provide this kind of contentment to the soul. So two helps in closing two helps here as it relates to the experience of this kind of contentment number one if you are not a christian you need to repent and believe on christ for this reason if you are not a christian you need to become one you need to repent and believe on him so that you have access to this kind of power and this kind of peace in the soul the lord jesus um, speaks of this issue i believe in one of the most precious invitations we have in the new testament he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. That's the only place you find rest for your souls. There's no other source. There's nowhere else one can go to find this kind of peace and this kind of divine enablement to produce contentment. Well, then secondly, as believers, and this is such a, this is a well-attested means of experience this kind of contentment we, we might think well doug i believe everything you're saying here but i, I don't feel in my soul that i'm experiencing as much contentment as i want this is this is one help and you have to act like you've never heard this before okay? the, the, the the means for you and i as believers to experience this kind of contentment is to pray not clinically not mechanically not superficially but it is to pray sincerely fervently by the Spirit, in the heart, and cast our care upon the being of God in prayer. That's how the contentment comes into our soul. How do I know that? Because verse 6 of chapter 4 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. One final verse. I'll just leave you with one final verse from Hebrews chapter 13. Let your character be free, from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the, the privilege we have of coming together and worshiping you and praising you and delighting in thee. We thank you for the, the provision of, of joy and peace and solace and contentment that you have given us in your Son through union with him, through communion with him, through contemplating him. And I, I pray that you would take what we have considered here this morning and apply it to our own hearts. Might it be... Um, honoring to thee might it be good for our souls and our own walk with you so i pray that you would make application to our own hearts for your honor and for your glory and we ask these things in jesus name amen